I'm afraid to ask, what do you know about the Song of Songs? <laughs> so I don't think I'm going to start there, actually. Um, I'll go ahead and just read the introduction there. The Song of Songs is notorious for being sexually descriptive. It is unique in the whole Bible in that it is a poetic wisdom song, and it is, in its entirety, a song. And it, has, it paints very descriptive pictures of, um, of lovers uh, and of sex. And so as we get into this, uh, I, I love the fact that we are dealing with this and we are talking about it. Because this is not something that uh, the world does a good job of talking about, and it's not something that uh, many corners of the Christian world necessarily does a great job of talking about. Them. In fact, what I think I'd like to do is just jump to the bottom of the first column. It says, while the world emphasizes romantic sexuality without the rock-solid commitment of marriage, and while Christian communities can tend to emphasize the rock-solid commitment of marriage and fail to emphasize the importance of romantic sexuality within marriage, the Song of Songs holds the two together as God designed them. And so that's uh, a, just a broad picture here of, of what's going on in the, the book Song of Songs. And uh, I've, I've read it many times before and just been puzzled, uh, not really sure what to do with it. And uh, in my studies this week, I have just been um, blown away. I just I am really excited about the things that I get to share with you tonight about what um, I believe is going on in this book. Uh, it was originally placed in the Hebrew Bible uh, after it, it was uh, Proverbs and then Ruth and then Song of Songs. The end of Proverbs, this is the end of the writing section of the Old Testament, end of Proverbs, Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman. Ruth, an example of the virtuous woman. Song of Songs, a love song from the perspective of the virtuous woman. So it makes sense that it would have been put together that way in the Jewish, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, for us, we have moved Ruth uh, into a more chronological location, but that does not minimize the fact that this song is a song from the perspective of a virtuous woman. And uh, it, I think, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm excited to get in. All right, so um, authorship is absolutely connected to Solomon because the, verse, the, the first uh, verse in the book is Song of Songs, of Solomon. Uh, now, sometimes you've heard it called Song of Songs. Sometimes you may have heard it called Song of Solomon. Um, let me let me get over there. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now, the English tends to say which is Solomon's, meaning possessive, uh, meaning probably written by him. The Hebrew says which is to Solomon and may have been written by him under his oversight or for him. But there's so much knowledge of the king's court and of things that happen in the king's court that it makes sense that this is connected to Solomon. I don't have any reason to think that this was not written by Solomon himself. Uh, that designation of Solomon, um, it says, again, in the ESV, which is Solomon's, that designation of Solomon is the same kind of structure that was used to describe certain psalms that were written by David. Um, some may argue then that it was simply written for David or in association with David. But I, th I think um, since even though that specific grammatical structure has been lost, I don't have many reasons to doubt Solomonic authorship here uh, in the book Song of Songs. Um, I could provide you five pretty solid arguments. I'll go ahead and just list a couple. First of all, Solomon is the only person named in the song. This comes from uh, Miles Van Pelt. Not only did Miles Van Pelt um, edit this 
this whole book, but he also wrote the chapter on Song of Solomon. So when I refer to him, I'm referring to, to him. Uh, in addition to Solomon's name, there are some other people that are connected with, uh, with his person and with his kingdom. For example, uh, there's a male figure who's called the king five times throughout the book. And uh, in chapter 3, that king is specifically identified as Solomon. The song mentions the king's bed in chapter 1, his chambers in chapter 1, the royal guard in chapter 3, the carriage in chapter 3, the crown in chapter 3, his harem in chapter 6, and the vineyard in chapter 8. There's also, uh, speaks of the chariots of Pharaoh, the tower of David, and the location of Jerusalem, all of which are things Solomon would have been familiar with. And so it would make uh, great sense that this is, in fact, written by Solomon. Um, Solomon is also described as having written over 1,000 songs. That's the same word, song of songs. And this one is described uh, using the Hebrew uh, repetition like that is to say this is the greatest of songs. So that's what that means, song of songs. This is, this is the song of songs. If you were to pick the greatest song, that's what the title means. Uh, and it's connected, it's, it's, very, it's similar in some ways to some love poetry that was found in Egypt. Uh, and Solomon had dealings with Egypt and traded with Egypt, so it would make sense that he might be familiar with some of their literature as well. So these are all things that um, make it reasonable to believe that Solomon did indeed write the Song of Songs. Now, when we get into the content, it doesn't necessarily paint him in the best light. But if you want to go back to our understanding of Ecclesiastes, if Solomon was also the author of Ecclesiastes, it does not paint him in the best light and his moral decisions and how he explored all these things that he, he would say are, are vanity and also downright uh, immoral. And so perhaps uh, the, the theory is that um, Solomon in his old age was able to reflect honestly and perhaps see some of his shortcomings. That is um, speculation, but uh, possible. So maybe that's also what's going on here in the book Song of Songs. Okay. Here's the outline. There are I have seen so many different outlines because this book kind of is all over the place, uh, and that's part of why I, I, when I had read it so many times before, I was really confused. Like, what do you do uh, with all these um, various descriptions of, um, of of luring a lover and of uh, even depictions of um, of sex and descriptions of a beautiful person. Uh, and it just seems to be all over the place. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and give you one outline here from Miles Van Pelt. And this is based on a specific setting with which he interprets this whole book. When you think of Solomon and you think of his sexuality, you think promiscuous. I mean, this guy had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So this is a man who is not known for his covenant faithfulness to a woman. And so um, there is a, an interpretation of this book. There are various interpretations of how to read what's going on in this book. Uh, and, and to say that, you know, I, I can't sift it down to, to one that I know is absolutely right. But this one, uh, from the little reading that I've done, makes the most sense out of the content of the book as well as connection with biblical uh, covenant marriage throughout Scripture. So this, this interpretation assumes that the Song of Solomon is written within the context of his harem. Whether it's his 700 wives or his 300 concubines, uh, it, it's not necessarily clear nor necessary to distinguish. Uh, the point is, this is written... Um, 
from the perspective of a virtuous woman who has been called upon to enter the harem and is refusing to go in to Solomon. All right, so that, that is kind of the context. With that in mind, uh, here's a potential outline. It would be the temptation of Solomon's harem in, in chapters 1 and 2, where there are many who are in it who say, hey, you're beautiful. This life is pretty easy. It's luxurious. Uh, you get to be with the king. And so chapters 1 and 2 kind of talk about the draw to be in Solomon's harem. Uh, chapter, or, or sorry, section 2 then is the arrival of true love where you can look at chapter 2, verse 8. Um, the, the virtuous woman is speaking and saying, the voice of my beloved. She's distinguishing between Solomon and her beloved. This is called the shepherd interpretation of the book of Song of Songs. And it believes that there is a third character. There is Solomon, there is the virtuous woman, and then there is her beloved who is called the shepherd. Uh, and the shepherd is um, called such in, um, I, I do not remember. Um, actually, in the ESV, it's interpreted, okay, yes, uh, chapter 2, verse 16. Uh, the, the virtuous woman says again, my beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. That word grazes is um, very... It's, this, it's the same word as he pastures his flock, he shepherds. So um, she, in a sense, calls him a shepherd there. So this shepherd interpretation uh, says that he's the true love on the scene. And then Solomon shows up again in chapter 3, and for chapters 3 through 8 tries to woo her again, but then she, um, she refuses in chapter 8. And she refuses out of her commitment to her beloved, whom she loves and uh, talks about the superiority of her beloved. And even the other women in the harem say, but what makes your beloved more special than any other? And you see that in um, song uh, chapter five, verse nine, they say, what is your beloved more than, in, than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? Um, so uh, that's where uh, we see she is, she is refusing uh, to to do the harem life because it is wrong and immoral. And so then she speaks of her true love, uh, the shepherd. Um, this was totally new to me. Is this just like brand new? Okay, okay. Um, that, that helps me understand uh, where I may need to slow down and, and highlight and reemphasize. Um, the back here on your handouts, gives you that outline in even greater detail. Yeah, like very, very detailed, verse by verse in some cases. We're not going to jump into that right now. We'll hopefully get to that in, the, in, um, in a few minutes. But I want to make sure you see that there uh, so that as you start to read through it, perhaps with this lens, you'll start to see um, how viable this interpretation is. Uh, other ways that the, the people try to interpret it as there are simply two, there's Solomon and his lover. Um, that, of course, runs into problems with uh, Solomon himself as a, not a, a um, monogamous uh, individual. Uh, it, in, in my estimation, kind of cheapens the bond then that he would have with this woman uh, if, if he were to have, you say, similar things of uh, 699 other wives. Um, 
he he would be yes the, the sure. one lover throughout yeah yeah um there are other interpretations that say this um this is purely allegorical and has nothing to do with reality or with sexuality it is an allegory for the relationship between christ and the church um and there are other people who go the other direction and say there is no meaning and it. it's it's simply just um it's just a poem about about sex so uh i think this typological reading that we're going to take emphasizes or it, it embraces both aspects it's saying yeah this is about love this is about marriage and about romance um but as marriage is uh, an, an image of how Christ loves the church, it is also a depiction in a typological sense of Christ and his church and of God with his people in the Old Testament, Christ and the church in the New Testament. So I think that's, uh, that's the approach that I think is most faithful. Uh, now, the specific shepherd interpretation, I, I'm not going to go um, die on that hill, but I am going to try to uh, show you where I think it does a really good job. I think it's important uh, to note that the woman here kind of begins by trying to get out of her job in the harem, if this is in fact written in the context of harem. Look in Song of Solomon chapter 1. Um, there seems to be a call to come to uh, the king and... This, this woman, um, well, the, first of all, the others would be then the other uh, members of the harem. They say, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. There, there seems to be this, this, um, this lover who's famous in the first four verses. Um, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oil is a fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Seems to be this, um, this guy who's known by the virgins as being a good lover. Um, of course, if this were written in the lifetime of King Solomon, nobody would call him a bad lover. Um, but as somebody who is um, known by many uh, in his harem, that seems to make sense with the context. All right, so there's this guy and um, all these virgins love you. And then the virtuous woman begins speaking in, in chapter 1, verse 5. She says, I'm very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. The daughters of Jerusalem uh, is really hard to interpret unless you understand this as a harem context. These would be the other women in the harem. So she's speaking to those who are with her there in the king's um, palace. Um, I'm dark, but lovely. And, and she starts explaining, don't, don't look at me because... She, this, this darkness, actually, she describes as a bad thing. Uh, don't gaze at me because, because I'm dark. The sun has looked upon me. I've, I've been working out in the vineyards. My brothers, my brothers were mad at me and made me work in the vineyard. So I'm, I, I'm sun-scorched. I'm a worker of the fields. Like, don't be attracted to me. She, it seems like she's trying to create a reason not to be attractive. And the rest of the harem is saying, no, no, you're beautiful. And, um, and you should really, you know, this is the temptation to Solomon. You should come and be a part of uh, what's going on here in the king's palace. Uh, and at the whole time, uh, she speaks often of her beloved, who is not there. And uh, you see in chapter 1, verse 12, there's a description of the king. Uh, and 
uh, she was prepared in the harem like uh, Esther was. There's a lot of similarities between the description of the harem in Esther and a lot of the language in here, including the spices and the nard and some of those other um, cosmetics, oils. And then there are guards and attendants that are in the book of Esther chapter 2 and also here throughout the book of Song of Songs. So these are all some other vocabulary and context reasons that this would make sense. Um, but she, she speaks then of her beloved in chapter, in verse 13, uh, and, and thinks of him even though she is there in the presence of the king. And then the king in uh, chapter 1, verse 15, chooses her. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Um, and and uh, let, me, let me pull this up here. We've got for the next couple verses um, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. She's speaking of her beloved. I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. She speaks of herself as a garden in a very important way at the end in chapter 8. But it's, it's kind of alluded to here. Also in verse 3, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. She seems to have this beloved who's not here. Uh, even though she, again, is being lured um, by the king. And listen to how she describes him starting in... Um, actually, I'm going to pause there because verse 7 sets up this pattern that starts to repeat. Chapter 2, verse 7 says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is a plea that she makes to the members, uh, to the others, if you will, um, which may possibly be the members of the harem. She um, asks them, and it, it helps structure the book. She asks them, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And that comes at the end of each major section. So 2-7, and it comes in, in 3-5. You can see that passage again. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. You see it also in... Um, you see it in 8.4. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. But also, if you go back to chapter 5, there's another verse, chapter 5, verse 8, where she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. It's not the same request. She says, if, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. And so there, this structure, these requests to the, um, the daughters of Jerusalem help structure the different sections here of the book. Before we uh, get into specifically how the, the lover and the virtuous woman seem to be unable to, um, they seem to be kept apart, uh, that comes in chapter 2, I just want to open it up for questions, comments, concerns before, before I keep going with this to make sure we're all understanding what's going on. Correct. And it's a tension between the obligation she feels forced into mm -hmm. being in the harem of the king and yet being in love with someone else. Mm -hmm. That's right. And specifically for her as a virtuous woman, the immorality of being in the harem and her covenant faithfulness to her beloved. 
to whom maybe she's betrothed, I don't know. Um, that, that, that could be a possibility. But culturally, isn't being betrothed virtually the same as being married? I mean, she wouldn't. Perhaps. Maybe. maybe came, you're right. You're right. If, if they were at, if, you're right. If the relationship was at the point of marriage, she wouldn't have been invited into the harem. But perhaps this was one that she had, maybe she's not betrothed. Maybe she's just, it's one that she, her heart has, is set on. Um, and she stays loyal to him. That, that's, the, that's what this interpretation is saying, yes. Uh, I can push yeah. a little bit, like, Solomon's the most powerful person in the kingdom, and we know he's not especially virtuous, so he may have just been taking what he wanted. Um, and she, throughout this song, is working to not be part of that and honor commitments and her love and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, did the video you watched have this no, interpretation? Um, sort of. Uh, okay. So they stress the relationship between the shepherd and the woman much more mm-hmm. um, and seem to leave Solomon out until chapter 5 where he okay. literally says, here's money. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Well, I think, I think we're going to see more and more of the shepherd. This is quite a bit more cinematic than like past readings because like yeah. you get into a new you just get confused by all of the yeah that's imagery. right yeah and the back and forth and who's talking and, and what's the context you just lose yep. all threads and now I'm sitting here going like oh this could be like a, a music video at least it's not really <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well if you think of this as interpreting a song um, you start to see that this this is perhaps not far fetched. Um, and you start looking at this is a song that has been written and songs are veiled and um, only so much can be said against the king if this was indeed written um, in the context of the king. Um, And you see though how this interpretation is difficult to reconcile with Solomon himself having written it. Does that make sense? Yes. Isn't there like a portion where Solomon is just in complete disobedience um, yes. Yeah. Well, I, that, that's speculation. Nobody knows if that happened. Yeah. Yeah. You're you're right. He was known for ending unfaithful, um, and so then when we look at Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, um, interpreting them as written by Solomon, it provides perhaps a little bit of hope that there is something undocumented that was hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that again is speculation, and an interpretation. Okay, so here comes the the beloved, the voice of my beloved. So it sounds like she is um, perhaps in the tower of the harem in chapter 2, verse 8. And she hears her beloved, the voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. She seems to be with the others. And, and he speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. It's springtime. And we know what spring signifies. Um, the fig tree has ripened. Um, and she, he says, Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet. Your face is lovely. Um, and looks like okay yes thank you she is still speaking um in verse 16 she says my beloved is mine and i am his 
He's the shepherd among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft mountains. And then there's a dream in chapter 3, a dream of her finding her lover. And, uh, and she, she couldn't find him. And then verse 4, she does find him, and she held on to him and would not let him go until she had brought him into her mother's house, into the chamber of her who conceived me. Um, and so then she, after her dream, she asks the daughters of Jerusalem, please don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now Solomon shows up. And the difference is that as Solomon comes up, unlike the beloved, he comes right in to where the daughters of Zion are with full access. And he begins speaking to them in verse 4, You're beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. And so it seems to be a very different type of relationship between her and her beloved, who is outside the walls, and her and the king. <laughs> no problem. No problem. So here you have the king... Uh, with full access to to these women. And so he comes in and begins to try to woo um, this virtuous woman again. And that you see in um, chapter 3. And then that goes through chapter 4. And then there's a second dream in chapter 5. And... This dream goes from chapter 5, verses 2 to, to, to verse 7. And then there is another temptation song from the harem in chapter 5, where they are saying again, um, why, is, why is your beloved any better than anybody else? Like, what's your problem with, with Solomon, in, according to this interpretation? And she begins to describe him in chapter 5, verse 10. He's radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. Uh, and, and so she describes him uh, with choice words. Um, and in chapter 6, you see what she says about him, verses 2 and 3. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the gardens to shepherd in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. And so um, Solomon tries to tempt again. And she says again in chapter 7, um, verse 10, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. And then the women start to speak in chapter 8. Again, in verse 5. Excuse me, I'm sorry, not the women. Then the woman, sorry, the virtuous woman now, is able to be with her beloved. Uh, and, and again, as a song, there's not necessarily um, a connection here, or, or, nor are full details given. But as she arrives in chapter 8, verses 5 through 14... Um, they are, um, basically, this is where the, the instruction of the book comes in. And you'll see that on the chart on the handout there. <clears throat> I apologize for the, the many ums. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of details. A lot of fascinating content. 
Chapter 8, verses 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12 are crucial. This seems to be where the virtuous woman lands in chapter 8, verse 6, as she's speaking to her shepherd, to her beloved. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Now, I'll go ahead and pause before we interpret this in the same context and say others who say that the relationship is between Solomon and um, a lover would say that this is the, the virtuous woman, the lover, saying, Solomon, you, you don't have a record of faithfulness. You need to set me as a seal upon your heart. This is a call from her to him to, to take her as his one and only wife uh, and to demand that sort of loyalty. Um, it also makes sense um, in this context to be the virtuous woman speaking to her beloved, who is um, not there in the harem, of course. Uh, and then verse 7, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Um, look at the, the table there. It's, you see those verses are already written there on the table. The way Miles Van Pelt does this table comes from him. He says, the commitment of marriage should be rock solid. And you see that in the demand that she makes of her lover. Place me like the seal on your heart, like the seal on your arm. For love is strong like death, obstinate like the grave with zeal. This, um, this zealous um, oneness is what she's desiring, this faithfulness. And that, of course, is rooted in, in Genesis that's God's design for marriage, is that a man and a woman be a seal on each other's heart. Uh, that they, the, the seal seal is a, is a concept in the Old Testament that has to do with access and permission. And so she's saying, I, I'm giving you that seal, to, that access to me. I am sealed for you and you for me. Uh, and so that commitment of marriage should be rock solid. That's the instruction that we see from her... Um, her conclusions here. And then she proceeds in the second part of that verse to say that its flames are flames of fire, the very flame of Yahweh, that is the hottest of all possible flame. In other words, the intimacy of marriage, the romantic nature of sex within marriage should be white hot. She's speaking of um, the, the value of sex within marriage as something that is to be celebrated and enjoyed and something that should be exciting. And um, within that context of, of that commitment in marriage with a rock-solid um, covenant of marriage, that helps this happen. Without it, this is very difficult. Um, and that's where you see those, those um, emphases from the world versus uh, the emphases from the church sometimes are, are very different and extremes uh, at a fault. This book holds them both together. You need to have um, that commitment and you need to have that uh, intimacy of marriage that should be white hot, as these verses say. And uh, chapter seven, or verse 7 there says, Many waters cannot extinguish love and the rivers cannot flood it. This is a love that endures hardship. Um, and I think that is getting beyond necessarily sexual um, encounters within marriage to the fact that love does not fail. This is, this is bigger than sex itself. Um, verses 7, 8, and 9 
Um, this love resists temptation. There's nobody else. There, nobody else is an option. And then, uh, as Miles Van Pelt says, verse 10 talks about um, how this type of love promotes satisfaction and wholeness. Verses 11 and 12 kind of seal the deal for me on this interpretation. Look at chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. Baal Hamon, nobody knows where that is, if it's a real place, but it literally means, let me find it. I think it means the multitude of the husband. Baal means husband or, um, or boss, and I have lost that note. But I believe it means the multitude of the husband. So if Solomon is indeed keeping a vineyard of the multitude of the husband, and he's let out the vineyard to keepers, um, potentially eunuchs, each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. If this is speaking of Solomon's accumulation of a harem in the term of a vineyard, which is not an uncommon um, analogy to use in speaking of this, the woman in verse 12 uh, buckles down and says no. She says, my vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, keep your thousands. And the keeper of the fruit, keep their hundreds. My vineyard's for me, not you. In that interpretation, that makes sense to me, uh, along with the rest of um, what the virtuous woman has said and what she longs for. And it, it is her doubling down on biblical monogamous marriage. And uh, I think it's a, it paints a beautiful picture of faithfulness. And then she finally um, says in the end, verse 14, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. And there is her, her cry to her uh, lover again, and her how she has you see how she has not strayed from her loyalty to him. Before we get into how this um, is a beautiful picture with a biblical theological understanding of faithfulness and marriage, um, I'd like to open it up. This is just a brief survey. Um, of, of all this stuff, and we can get in and dive in in more details. Um, perhaps that outline on the back is something you can go look at and, and let use this to read through the book. Um, but before any of that, I just want to open it up now. Questions, comments, suggestions? Yeah. Is it true that there's like an age restriction for Jewish Yeah, Jewish, um, Jewish uh, men cannot read this until 30 years old. Yeah, um, I. There's a good chance I misread that. I don't remember which book I read that in. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand the thirteen significance, but I I vaguely remember reading thirty. I'm not going to stand by that because I can't find it right now. <laughs> Other thoughts, questions? 
I appreciate that Scripture's not afraid to talk about sex and romantic longings um, in, a, in a godly way. Uh, there's a quote that um, I'm sure y'all have heard me say before um, from an Anglican priest, and, and the quote is, um, if the church doesn't tell us what our bodies are for, our culture certainly will. And so if, if we as a church aren't talking about what sexuality is in a godly way, we're going to pick up what that is from the world. And, and that's dangerous and that's scary because we know I mean, if, if, if we're a church that um, keeps saying, oh, well, the world shouldn't be saying this and, and we can't, that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and everybody's doing everything wrong. Well, have we offered what's right? Have we affirmed what is good and what is godly? And so I love the fact that Song of Songs is here in part to do that. Now, I take no credit for this. Um, next week, you know what we're starting um, in Sunday evenings is the, the PCA Human Sexuality Report. I take no credit for the fact that that falls the week after Song of Songs. That was That's totally God's provision. Uh, I am not that insightful or foresightful, whatever the word is. Um, that's, that's, that's God's provision. Um, we're going to get into it, and I think it's really important for us to talk about what is sexuality and how does... How has God designed it, and what's it for? And uh, I, I know that um, all of us have different um, married folks have different experiences in our marriages with uh, what sex is, is what it's like, what it is and isn't. Um, and so, I, it's it's helpful for all of us to consider um, to consider these things and to look at Scripture intentionally to think about what is the point of our bodies. And why has God designed us in, uh, with sexuality? And, you know, what went from not good at the beginning in creation, there, there's one difference between not good and very good. And it was the man with the woman. And we can't just say that they were uh, platonic friends. I mean, it is, the, it is the romantic and the relational. It's the heart bond and the physical bond that is so good about that. Uh, and so... Uh, I think this is, I'm excited that we're going to get to dive into this. Uh, I had no clue Redeemer Church was also going to be going through this around this season. Uh, and then the way it's panned out, they're also going to start next Sunday. Um, so we're going to pace. We're starting with Redeemer, which is kind of cool that we're starting the same report at the same time. For them, it's going to be Sunday mornings in their Sunday school. For us, it'll be the Sunday evenings. Uh, and we're probably going to pace differently. I'm not sure how long they're going to go through it. I'm not sure how long we're going to go through it. Uh, I would guess at least uh, two months. That's my my guess, but I I, I can't I can't guarantee that. Um, but this image of marriage and of covenant faithfulness is found throughout the Bible. God is described as the um, the groom of Israel in the Old Testament many times. Isaiah fifty four, Hosea, uh, all of all of Hosea. Um, and in Second Corinthians and Ephesians and Revelation, and Jesus, of course, also being described as the bride, or excuse me, the groom of the church who is his bride. Here, here's a, a fuller list. Yahweh is um, is married to Israel if, uh, in in such language in Isaiah 50, Isaiah 54, Isaiah 62, Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah. Uh, excuse me, Ezekiel 16 and Hosea. And then Christ and the church is especially clear in Ephesians 5, 22 uh, through 32, where um, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
And then we also anticipate a day of a wedding feast. A wedding feast between the the lamb, the, the wedding supper of the lamb, and that is Christ and, and his beloved, the church. There is a, a pastor recently who has since stepped down from his pulpit, um, which I think is a good thing, uh, who released a book about sex and in um, sinfully graphic terms described sex as the illustration of Christ and the church. That is not what I'm saying. It was It's unhelpful. I do not, of course, recommend it. Um, even mentioning it, I'm, I was hesitant to even mention it, but there's your warning flag. If you encounter this, it's it's not good. Um, Gospel Coalition posted it and then immediately took it down and, and had to apologize. Um, that's not what's going on here. There is a, a bond between a husband and a wife that is a vague picture of the beauty of the fulfillment that we're going to see with Christ and his church. Um, this is uh, something, a, a goodness and a joy uh, that all right. So, so marriage and sexuality have a goodness and a joy, but they're only anticipations of something so much greater, different scale, different level, different. Um, almost, uh, I don't know if you believe in dimensions. I don't, but maybe another dimension type of relationship here. This and it's this satisfaction and this fulfillment and this wholeness of life in the coming kingdom when we are wed to Christ. And so. All these descriptions and longings for your beloved, that is just a picture of, of how we too should be longing to be with Christ. And we, we long for that pure spiritual milk like we heard about this morning. And we await the day and we say, come Lord Jesus. Um, because when the, um, the groom comes, we should be ready with our lamps. Uh, and, and that is a, a heart in a soul position of love for the groom. Um, and that's what's pictured here. That's what's pictured in all marriages. And what it means is when we're united to Christ on that last day, we don't understand how joyful and fulfilling it's going to be. Uh, and that is something that we should really be excited for. Set our sights on that day. Any concluding comments or thoughts? Okay. Let us pray, and then we'll sing one last song. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your eternal love for your people. You have foreknown us and understood us and pursued us in a way that we won't understand, maybe ever. We look forward to that day where we are in your presence without a veil between. When we are united to Christ, our Savior, and are filled with joy inexpressible. We pray that we would mirror that love in our marriages. And for those who aren't married, would we mirror Christ-like love to all those around us as we serve Christ our King and would um, would we long for that covenant faithfulness and the beauty of that covenant bond that you have um, reserved for marriage. Would we live in that by your strength? 
would we anticipate that marriage supper, that feast, uh, as the new Jerusalem descends as a bride adorned for her husband, and as we, the bride, the the church, are uh, prepared for the groom, uh, we pray that you would hold us until that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.